Well, as uh, we think about the July 4th weekend, I wanted, uh, before we get to our message, just remind you of a passage in First Timothy chapter 2, which says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So I thought uh, since this is July 4th weekend that we'd kind of begin by doing exactly this and praying uh, for those who are in leadership. Lord, we come to you uh, on this July 4th weekend. And Lord, first of all, we come grateful, uh, Lord, for the freedom uh, that we have. Lord, we are gathered here openly and uh, without fear that uh, uh, someone will come and and, uh, disrupt the service or haul us away, Lord, and for this freedom. Uh, which so many of our brothers and sisters around the world don't have this morning. Lord, we give you thanks. Lord, it is our desire to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all dignity and godliness. And so, Lord, we pray for all those who are in positions of authority in our country. Lord, uh, we pray uh, for the president. Lord, we pray for the Congress, the Supreme Court, for our state, county, and local officials, Lord. And as your word encourages us to do, Lord, we pray first and foremost for their salvation. Lord, that they would know you. Lord, that they would have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lord, uh, that you would transform their hearts. And then from that new heart, Lord, would come uh, decisions that are just and right in your sight. Lord, that they would uh, make decisions here in this land which are in submission, Lord, to your higher law. Uh, For you are the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. So, Lord, we pray for them, uh, for their salvation, and uh, for uh, wisdom in their decisions, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to continue our study of the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 29, so if you want to turn there. And if you recall from last time, we're in the fifth major section of the book, which goes from chapters 28 through 35. And I've entitled this section, Woes and Wonders, Judgments and Joys. Because in the, this section are a series of warnings, but in the midst of the warnings there are messages of hope and of a promise of joy for all who will repent and believe. But the major sections within uh, this, uh, this section of the book, the major divisions within this section of the book, are based upon a series of six woes. Six woes which are found in this section. And if you recall from last time, those are woe to the drunkards in chapter 28, verse 1. Woe to spiritual apathy, chapter 29, verse 1. Woe to those who live a double life, chapter 29, verse 15. Woe to rebellious children who won't listen, chapter 30, verse 1. Woe to those who trust in human power, chapter 31, verse 1. And woe to tyrannical leaders in chapter 33, verse 1. So there are six woes in this chapter, but interspersed with those woes are some wonders. Interspersed with the warnings of judgment are promises of joy for all who will respond uh, to these warnings. So we're going through these six woes, and last time we discussed the first one, which is woe to the drunkards. Chapter 28, verse 1 says, woe to the proud crown of the drunkards. So this morning we've come now to chapter 29, verse 1, which is the second woe. Woe to spiritual apathy. Woe to those who are spiritually apathetic. And this is discussed in chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. So look at chapter 29. We'll begin by reading verses 1 through 4. Isaiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. Woe, O Ariel. Ariel, the city where David once camped. 
add year to year. Observe your feast on schedule. I will bring distress to Ariel, and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. I will camp against you, encircling you, and I will set siege works against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you. Then you will be brought low, from the earth you will speak, and from the dust where you are prostrate, your words will come. Your voice will also be like that of a spirit from the ground, and your speech will whisper from the dust. This, of course, is a prophecy of the coming invasions where they are going to be subjugated by uh, external oppressors. They are going to be literally prostrated into the dust. They're going to speak out of, with their faces in the dirt to these invaders who are coming as part of God's discipline and judgment upon them. But I want you to notice in verse 1, the nickname given to Jerusalem. It says, Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. This is clearly a reference to Jerusalem. Inside Jerusalem is the city of David. And so this is clearly a reference to Jerusalem. And this nickname, Ariel, literally means Lion of God. Lion of God. So Jerusalem is called by the nickname Lion of God. But then verse 2 says that judgment is coming on the city. And then verse 2 ends with a very cryptic phrase. It says, she, that is Jerusalem, will be like an Ariel to me. And so here's a play on word. Jerusalem is called Ariel, and, which is Lion of God. So Jerusalem, the Lion of God, will be like a Lion of God. What is the message being communicated by this play on the word Ariel? Well, by calling Jerusalem the Lion of God, this is a reference to how God, the Lion of Judah, would protect his people by devouring their enemies. When enemies would come against Israel, they would be devoured by God. We remember all the Old Testament stories where wicked nations would come against them to try to wipe them out, to massacre them, and the Lion of Judah would come and would defend the people. So, calling Jerusalem Ariel was an encouraging thing. It was saying God will fight for them. God, like a lion, will defend them against their enemies, against their oppressors. So when the people are faithfully walking with God, this is an encouraging truth, for it means they will be protected from hostile powers around them. The lion of God will devour the enemies of God. But here there's a play on words and why. Because through their rebellion and unbelief, the people inside Jerusalem had become no different than the pagan nations surrounding them. Like the pagan nations surrounding them, they too had become enemies of God. And so when the people rebel and become idolatrous enemies of God, the fact that Jerusalem is Ariel, the Lion of God, becomes not an encouragement but a warning. The lion of God will devour God's enemies. And those enemies will be devoured whether they are enemies outside the gates or enemies inside the gates. And so when God says, you will be like a Jerusalem, you will be like a lion of God to me. This is a warning to those inside Jerusalem who are at enmity with God that the lion of Judah is going to pounce on them. But as Isaiah was announcing these coming judgments, over and over he's warning the people, trying to call them to repentance. But the people, by and large, rejected his warnings. And the, one of the main reasons they rejected their warnings is because they thought they, those warnings didn't apply to them. 
They were religious people. They thought they were good enough to be okay with God. Why would the Lion of Judah pounce on us? I mean, we're the residents of Jerusalem. We're not God's enemies. We're religious. We keep the feast. We do all of these things. And notice that verse 1 affirms that that was happening. It says, Woe, O Ariel, the city where David once camped, Add year to year, observe your feast on schedule. This is an acknowledgement that they were observing the Old Testament religious festivals every year, year after year, and they were doing so on schedule. So what's the problem? Why was the Lion of Judah about to turn his wrath on them when they were religious? They were keeping the festivals and the feast and doing so year by year, keeping them on schedule even. Why would the wrath of God fall on them? Well, verses 13 and 14 give us the answer. So skip down to chapter 29, verses 13 through 14. The Lord explains why. Then the Lord said, because, right, this judgment is coming, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. So it was true that the people were religious. It was true that they were religiously keeping the feast on schedule year after year, but something was missing and that something was their hearts. Their hearts weren't in it. They were keeping up the traditions handed down to them by their forefathers, but there was no heart to it, no real faith, no real worship, no real love for God. Jesus quotes this verse. And applies it to his day. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They are just repeating things they learned by tradition. The fact that this was such a problem in the time of Isaiah, it was such a problem in the time of Christ, tells us that it is a problem which is always a threat. And the same problem clearly exists today even in solid Bible teaching churches. There are a lot of people who consider themselves to be Christians simply because that is the religion of their forefathers. And they've kept up the traditions handed down to them. Mom and dad were Christians. Grandpa and grandma were Christians. And were Christians too. These cultural Christians are what we could call heritage Christians. Christians by cultural heritage. These are people who probably pray before their meals. They probably keep the feasts year after year by celebrating Christmas and Easter faithfully. And they probably even attend church, at least whenever they don't have something better to do. But when they sing, it's just a mindless recitation of familiar songs. When they pray, it's just repeating phrases they learned as kids. When they attend church, their hearts are in, their bodies are in the pews, but their hearts are on the golf course or at the lake or on the couch. 
They are spiritually apathetic and they are indifferent to the things of God. They would never admit it publicly, perhaps never admit it to themselves, but deep down they find the things of God to be boring, irrelevant, and a waste of time. Have you ever had a situation where you, you, know, you meet someone, you don't know them, and for whatever reason, they just decide to go, start going on and on and on and on and on again about their spouse or you know, maybe a parent or some, someone that they love, but you don't know this person and you definitely don't know the person they're talking about, but they're going on and on and on again about how wonderful this person you've never met is, how incredible they are telling you the whole story, how they met this person, what, you know, what they've done and all of the good things about them and they're just going on and on and in your mind you're like, oh my goodness, when are they going to shut up? that's how a lot of people are in church because there's people up here who are singing about someone they love there's people who are sharing about how they met this person there's someone who talks for 45 minutes goes on and on and on and on and on and on about this one that they love but you don't know this one and so therefore you don't care. You see, if you find the things of God boring, irrelevant, and a waste of time, it's probably because you don't know the Lord and certainly because you don't love him. People are always excited to talk about the ones they love. If you ever have met a newly engaged couple, you can't get them to stop talking about one another. You know, I, I do quite a bit of premarital counseling, right? And, you know, you ask some questions and you kind of don't get answers, but then you say, tell me how you met. Okay, hope you have some time because it's going to come, right? They love to talk about the one they love. So if you find worship to be boring, if you find prayer to be irrelevant, the scriptures to be boring, it's probably because you don't, love the one we're talking about now don't get me wrong I look I'm a preacher I listen to other preachers sometimes we are just simply boring right sometimes sometimes it, it, it's my fault right I'm not you know I'm not trying to like put a guilt trip on you if you're like that was just boring right like like Brett just bored us to death today that happens I understand that I experience it too not with myself. Well, sometimes with myself, but yeah. But I'm talking about in general, right? If the things of God are boring to you, something's wrong. The spiritually apathetic do the bare minimum that they think is necessary to be able to think of themselves as good Christians. But if they're honest with themselves, they dread having to go to church. They dread reading the Bible, praying, and all the other things that their parents taught them good Christians do. See, they're trying to keep up the tradition of being a good Christian. So they're doing the things they've been told that good Christians do, but they're only doing them because that's what good Christians are supposed to do. They don't love the Lord. And of course, if you don't love the Lord, it's because you don't know him, because if you know him, you will love him. So 
these people do religious things, but they do religious things for the same reason they take in their car for an oil change. It's an irritating but necessary chore to keep things running smoothly. How many people attend church because they realize, hey, look, if I don't provide some sort of a religious foundation for my kids, some sort of a moral structure for my kids, then you know, they could turn out to be drug addicts and, you know. So they're here because they want a, enough religion to keep things running smoothly. Just like an oil change. It's an expensive, irritating chore that you do to keep things running smoothly. You need fresh oil in your engine. You need an occasional dose of religion just to kind of keep things running smoothly. But here's the point. Can you imagine what would happen if someone invented an engine that never needed an oil change? Do you think people would keep going in for oil changes? No, never again. Right? You only go for an oil change because you have to. You don't do it because you want to. You do it only because you have to. And if you didn't have to, you wouldn't do it. And that's what is true of the spiritually apathetic. The sad reality is that there are millions of unsaved cultural Christians who do religious things for the same reason they get oil changes, for the same reason they get their teeth cleaned once a year, and for the same reason they swap out their, fil their filter furnace. It's necessary to keep things running smoothly. They do them not because they want to, but because they think they have to. So to paraphrase verse 13, they go through the motions, but their hearts are far from me. And their religion is nothing more than keeping up the traditions they learned as kids. These are the people that Revelation chapter 3 calls the lukewarm. They're not hot, they're not cold, they're just lukewarm. And Revelation 3 says that these pseudo-Christians are going to be spewed out by God like a man spews out lukewarm sour milk. Apathetic, indifferent religiosity is worse in God's sight than openly declaring yourself to be an unbeliever. Because at least the brazen unbeliever isn't putting God's name on a lukewarm life. Isn't putting God's name on a sour milk kind of life. In other words, the scripture calls you to have integrity. Be in, be out, but don't try to straddle this fence because this is a fence no one can straddle. Woe to the spiritually apathetic. So the question is, does this second woe describe you? Are you just going through the religious motions? Are you just doing the bare minimum you think it takes to get to heaven? Are you just doing this to keep grandma off your back? Has it been 3,000 hours since you've last warmed a pew and so you're in for your little religious oil change and get the I attended this quarter sticker so you can move on with your life and enjoy the lake next weekend without feeling guilty? Are you spiritually apathetic? If so, it could be that you're a believer who has lost your first love or it could be that you're an unbeliever who's going to be spewed out of God's mouth but either way you need personal revival you need repentance and personal revival woe to the spiritually apathetic well the next woe the third woe describes what happens when the first woe drunkenness is combined with the second woe which is spiritual apathy when drunkenness is combined with spiritual apathy what you get is a double life you get intentional deliberate and unrepentant hypocrisy 
and that is the third woe. Woe to those who live a double life. Look at chapter 29, verses 15 and 16. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he doesn't know what he's doing. He has no understanding. Woe to those who live a double life. And that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning. These verses are describing someone who is purposefully and unrepentantly leading a double life. They live one way in public and another way in private. And they do this double life, they live this double life knowingly, intentionally, on purpose. So I want to distinguish between the struggling Christian and this person who's living a double life. Every believer, every Christian struggles with sin. And all of us, let's be honest, struggle more when we don't have our brothers and sisters nearby to encourage us, exhort us, and help us. We all struggle more when we're isolated. And every believer is constantly struggling to bring areas of sin into conformity with their faith in Christ. Every believer struggles with areas and instances of, hip, of hypocrisy in their life. And these areas and instances of hypocrisy grieve them deeply. Because they long to be holy and they see areas in which they are not. And so they are deeply grieved Every believer is in a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sometimes we lose some bitter battles. But verses 15 and 16 are describing something and someone different. This is describing someone who purposefully lives a double life. Look at what it says. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord. This is intentional. Their deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Who knows us? We can get away with it. This is a person who's not fighting against sin but losing. It's someone who's actively and deliberately living in sin and pursuing sin. It's not a Christian who has stumbled and fallen. It's someone who is actively and intentionally plunging into as much sin as they think they can get away with. They're not struggling to overcome sin. They're plunging into it. In fact, their only struggle is how to indulge sin without getting caught. How to indulge sin without getting grandma on their back. How to indulge sin without people thinking that they're a bad person. They want to do as much sin as they can without consequences this is the person who's living a double life and the last part of verse 15 tells us where this kind of double life comes from verses 15 and 16 give us two sources of a double life verse 15 says it comes from unbelief and verse 16 tells us it comes from pride notice at the last part of verse 15 how this kind of a double life comes from unbelief it says they say who sees us who knows us 
they don't really believe that God sees what they're doing or that he knows what they're doing. In other words, they deny his omnipresence. They deny his omniscience. They think they can actually hide things from God and get away with it. This is an unbeliever. He doesn't actually believe that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere. They don't actually believe that he knows all things. They think they can sin and get away with it. So a double life comes first of all from unbelief just raw unbelief but verse 16 indicates another source of this double life and that is pride a pride which causes them to consider themselves to be equal with God to deny that he's their maker to deny that he knows what he's doing and Paul cites this verse Isaiah chapter 29 verse 16 he cites this verse in Romans chapter 9 to rebuke those whose pride leads them to talk back to God, to challenge and question God's sovereignty and his justice. And so this is a very important verse that is cited in the New Testament as a powerful rebuke to human pride. A pride which inevitably leads to a double life. So again, in verse 15, we see that behind a double life is unbelief, and in verse 16, behind a double life is devilish pride. So how do you, what's the solution for a double life? If you're living a double life, how do you get out of it? Well, there's really only two ways to resolve a double life, right? You either have to stop pretending to be a Christian or stop living in sin. I mean, pretty logical if you're living a double life you have to either drop the one or the other and you're going to make that choice if your desire is to be a true Christian where does it begin well verse 16 says that it begins with recognizing who's God and who's not you turn things around shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay the solution to a double life begins with recognizing that you are clay and God is the potter. He's God and you are not. I don't know if you've ever watched someone make pottery, but they take a lump of clay and the clay's hard. It can't be shaped. So the first thing they have to do is they start to pound the clay. They start to pound and break and work the clay until it is soft enough to be changed, to be shaped, and to be molded. If you are living a double life, the potter is going to pound you until you are soft enough to change. Because, see, it's a hard heart that is driving your double life. The person with a double life is hard-hearted, and so the potter has to pound that clay until it can be shaped and molded in his hands. He is the potter and you are the clay. How hard is he going to have to pound you before you will have a heart that is soft enough to change? Well, I want to look a little more closely at the four clauses of verse 16 and from them I want to draw four practical exhortations to those who are living a double life. So if you're living a double life, these four exhortations are for you. First of all, stop acting like you're the sole member of a cult. 
which worships you. The person living a double life is in the silliest of all religions. He's the sole member of a wacky cult which worships himself. Verse 16 begins by saying, you turn things around. The English Standard Version translates this as, you turn things upside down. It's another manifestation of the inverted moralism that chapter five talks about, where you literally turn, invert everything. You put yourself in the position of the potter and you try to make God the clay. You're trying to shape God to fit your image rather than you being shaped to fit his. You turn things around. You become the sole member of a cult which worships a deified self. Notice how we see this in our age today. If I feel something, it is so. I will determine reality by what I think and what I feel. That is the deification of self. And we're seeing this in incredibly overt ways in our society. Live your truth is the motto. Whatever your reality is, try to make the world and even your own body conform to your reality. You internally get to decide what reality is and then try to impose it on the rest of creation. This is the deification of self. But all kinds of people do this in various ways. And people who live a double life do so because they have turned things upside down. They have put themselves in the place of God. They may be religious, but their true religion is the worship of self. Their pride, their pleasure, their plans, their privileges are the highest priority. Whatever is your highest priority is what you worship. And if your pride, your pleasure, your plans, and your privileges are your highest priority, you have made an idol, crafted it in your own image, and bowed down to it. You are worshiping yourself. They live to worship, serve, and please themselves, and then they think everyone else should too. So if God or family or friends and everything and everyone else doesn't serve them, doesn't give them what they want, doesn't tell them what they want to hear, doesn't kowtow to their every wish and whim, they lash out. They lash out at anyone who refuses to respond to their deified dictates. This, by the way, is the source of the double life lived by the prim, proper, and professional-looking man who sits in the pews on Sunday but beats his wife on Monday. Why does he beat her? Because she didn't do what he wanted. He's put himself in the throne of deity. How dare she not follow his every whim? This is the source of the double life of the teenager who acts like a good Christian at church and at home but like a foul-mouthed pagan at work and school. Why, why does the rebellious teenager do this? Very simple. They want people to esteem them, to honor them. At church, people esteem and honor those who walk with God. So at church, they're good Christians. But at school and at work, they esteem you if you're a foul-mouthed pagan. So there, they're a foul-mouthed pagan. The double life is very simple. They want people around them to honor them, to give them glory. At church, they get glory one way, and at school, they get glory a different way. So wherever they are, they act the way which will get them glory. They've deified themselves. 
By the way, lest you kind of think of kind of the extreme examples, oh, this applies to other people. Think how the deification of, of self happens in your kitchen. Deification of self happens in your kitchen a lot. You're doing things and all of a sudden you, you, you accidentally you know, knock something over and it spills. And what happens? You get angry at an inanimate object. Stupid bowl of soup. Well, yeah, I mean, by definition, the bowl of soup is stupid. It has no brain. But why are you so angry at the soup? Because it didn't do what you wanted it to do. Right? You're, you know, guys, you're fixing something, you know, and it breaks. Stupid you know, you're hitting a nail at Ben. Stupid nail! <laughs> you're mad at the creation for not serving you. It's the deification of self. So lots of things from anger and rage and a chameleon life, lots of things flow from this deification of self. And a double life is the inevitable result of a heart that has deified itself, which has turned things upside down. And so to get out of a double life, you have to repent and stop acting like you're the sole member of a cult which worships you. You need to become a worshiper rather than demanding that creation worship you and serve you. Second, stop acting like you are God's equal. The next phrase in verse 16 says, shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? You know, when two people are equals, their opinions hold equal weight, don't they? And so they're free to debate each other. So, for example, say in a military context, right? Two one-star generals are talking about what to do. Their opinions have equal weight. And so, you know, they're debating and they're maybe trying to persuade one another. But what happens when a private walks in and sits down at the table and says, well, let me tell you guys what I think we should do. No, no. No, no, no. Your opinion doesn't have equal weight, right? Because you are ranked under. Even though we would think it's silly for a private to walk into, you know, the joint chiefs and start trying to debate and argue with them. But think about this. We do this with God all the time. We argue with him. We talk back to him. But in Romans 9, when Paul cites this verse, he says, who are you, O man, who talks back to God? You don't debate with him. You don't argue with him. You don't have his opinion and your opinion. No, you are to submit and obey because you are not equals. But people who live a double life act at least as if they think they're equals. For example, God's word teaches morals and doctrine, but they feel like they can question it, debate it, argue against it. They can even reject it outright if it doesn't make sense to them or if they don't agree with it. This is the famous story of Thomas Jefferson who takes his penknife and cuts out the parts of the Bible that he doesn't agree with. Yeah, there were parts he agrees with. Treat others the way you want to be treated. That's the golden rule. We'll keep that. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No, we won't keep that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. No, we won't keep that. We'll cut those parts out. 
these are people who think they're on God's, God's equal. They can kind of, the thi- God's opinions that they like, they'll keep. God's opinions they don't like, they'll reject. In their hearts, they've climbed into the judge's chair. They're sitting in judgment upon God. They are deciding whether or not they think he's right, whether or not they think he's just, whether or not they think he's fair. They don't realize they are clay arguing with a potter. They are the creation arguing with the creator. And you are not his equal. Who are you, O oh man, Paul says, who talks back to God? You know, you, you're at the grocery store, you know, and some little, you know, some little toddler is like, you know, mommy, can I have a sucker? And the, you know, mother says, no, son. And the kid just starts lipping off and talking back. And everybody is around is like, oh my goodness, what a misbehaved kid. How can he talk back to his mother that way? And yet those very same people will do the same thing against God. People who live a double life do so because deep down they consider themselves to be God's equal. They may not admit that even to themselves, but their life shows that that's the reality. Because God says, that is forbidden, and their hearts say, but not for me. God says, this is the truth, and their hearts say, no, no, that is the truth. They don't submit to God. They don't obey God. And if you don't submit to God, you don't obey God, you show that in your heart you think you're his equal. Because if you understood you're not his equal, you would obey. You would submit. Lack of submission, lack of obedience shows pride. So whether this person admits it or not, it's clear as day that they feel they're God's equal. They can argue and debate whether his word is right, wrong, or, or irrelevant. And most importantly, they don't have to listen to him. They don't have to prioritize him or obey him. You see, with an equal, you can totally disregard their opinion. You don't have to listen to the opinion of an equal, but a superior, you have to listen. You have to prioritize. You know, at your workplace, a coworker who is your equal, you know, if they send you, uh, you know, an email with a suggestion, you might kind of choose to ignore it. But if the boss sends you something, you kind of got to pay attention, don't you? You have to prioritize what comes from the boss. In the deepest of all ways, God is the boss. You have to listen to him. You have to prioritize him, and you have to obey him. And if you do not, you show a heart that thinks you're his equal. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? You need to repent of this. Stop acting like you're God's equal. Third, you need to stop acting like you're a self-made man. Stop acting like you're a self-made man or a self-made woman. Look at the third clause in verse 16. It says, Should what is made say to its maker, He didn't make me. He didn't make me. No, I'm a self-made man. You know, sometimes people, they, they might admit, well, okay, I guess, I guess God made me in the sense he gave me my life, but, but I'm the one who worked this hard. I'm the one who, who did well in school. I'm the one who built this business. I'm the one who climbed the ladder. I'm the one. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. This is pride. People who live a double life do so because they think they deserve to indulge in sin. See, if you are a self-made man, then you should get to decide what you do with what you have. If you're not a self-made man, then 
you owe a debt of gratitude and obedience to someone else. Here's the progression. Pride leads to a sense of entitlement. And a sense of entitlement leads to self-indulgence. So if you have something in your life, some sin you've been indulging in, and you're like, how did I get to this point of self-indulgence? Well, back it up. You are in self-indulgence because you had a sense of entitlement. And you had a sense of entitlement because of pride, right? Pride tells you that you deserve this, that, or the other thing. This is why many people who lead a double life spiritually are those who are very successful in other areas of life. They think they're a self-made man who achieve power, position, and prestige because of their intellect, talents, and work ethic, and so they have the right to indulge. I worked so hard, who can blame me for this little indulgence? This is why, by the way, fame and riches and power are so corrupting, because these are often highly successful people who really did work hard, achieved some measure of success, and now they think they are owed some indulgence some private pleasure, some illicit sin. When people take pride in their success, their pride leads to their downfall. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So friend, you need to realize you are not a self-made man. First and most importantly, you didn't make yourself. Your very life was given to you by God, but also your intellect was given to you by God. Your talent was given to you by God. Your daily bread is given to you by God. Your health is given to you by God. And then all the opportunities that you've had are connected to things way beyond your control. You were born in this area, not in the dark ages. Now, you didn't die of the plague when you were eight, did you? You're living in America, not North Korea. My guess is you may not have achieved such a lofty status of power, position, wealth, and success if you were living in North Korea, would you? You have good health, not polio. There are so many things that your life and your success depend on that didn't come from you. And so the word of the Lord to you is that which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where the apostle says to us, who regards you as superior, right? You think you're superior. You're superior to other people, so you have the right to this, that, and the other thing. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You're not a self-made man. Romans 11 36 says all things are from God and through God and to God you don't get the credit all of those blessings came from him through him and therefore they're to him and he gets the glory not you so don't fall into the trap of pride because a double life results from thinking that you are a self-sufficient self-reliant and self-made person and therefore you have the right and as soon as you feel entitled, you have the right to something, you will indulge yourself and the flesh will come in. Fourth, last exhortation, stop acting like you're smarter than God. Last phrase of verse 16, 
says, should what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. He doesn't know what he's doing. You know, the most ridiculous thing in the universe is when a finite created being thinks he's smarter than the infinite creator who made him. And yet this very silly form of arrogance is very common to man. And it especially emerges when we are engaging in the pathetic form of pride called self-pity. Self-pity is the pathetic form of pride. All right, you have boastful pride and then you have the pathetic form of pride, self-pity. So how does self-pity go? Well, it usually goes something like this. No one understands me. Let's just stop for a minute. What did you just think or say? No one understands you. Well, you just did what verse 16 says. Like literally, you say to the one who formed you, he has no understanding. No one understands me, not even God. Even your maker, he doesn't understand you. He shaped and molded you and he doesn't understand you. No one cares about me. Even the one who shed his blood and died in agony for you, he doesn't care either. You see, behind self-pity lies a pathetic form of pride which denies that God has understanding, that he knows what he's doing, that he's sovereign, that he's good. Don't do that. The things which we think and which we say when we're filled with self-pity are functional denials of God's attributes. His goodness, his sovereignty, his omniscience, his love, his care. It's saying to God, you don't understand you have no understanding. And by the way, when you secretly think that God doesn't know, doesn't care, or doesn't understand, you'll start looking for alternatives. And the enemy of your soul, Satan, will provide you with a very appealing alternative. He'll provide you with someone who you think knows, cares, and understands. Satan is only too glad and only too eager to provide you with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a mistress, a drinking buddy, or a friend group which will seem to understand you, seem to care about you, and will lead you skipping and singing down the road to hell. Questioning God's understanding is a sure path to a double life. A double life results from questioning the omniscient wisdom and understanding of God. It's when something that is formed says to the one who formed it, he has no understanding, he doesn't know what he's doing. Oftentimes, people have a disappointment in life. They get disappointed with God and then they plunge into a double life. Well, I guess God doesn't know. I guess God doesn't care. So I'll just, I'll, I'll what? I'll what? You'll go where? You'll go to indulgence and sin because you think Satan knows and understands you better than God. You need to repent. Stop acting like you're smarter than God. Well, so as verse 15 and 16 teaches, a double life results from pride and unbelief. I want to close though with the hope that's found at the end of chapter 29 there's a messianic prophecy and a prophecy of hope in verses 17 through 24 is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered as a forest on that day the deaf will hear words of a book this one and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see the afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord. And the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless will come to an end. The scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. 
who cause a person to be indicted by a word and ensnare him who adjudicates at the gate and defraud the one in the right with meaningless arguments. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth and those who criticize will accept instruction. There will come a day in which the clay will be softened and they will be shaped and molded. And so in the midst of the warnings of woe, there is wonder. In the midst of the warnings of judgment, there is joy which comes through repentant faith. And so I encourage you to embrace the joy and flee the judgment. We're gonna come now to the uh, Lord's table. And as the men are coming to serve us, I want to encourage you to examine yourself. Is there something in your life that you're hiding from the Lord, that you're an area of hypocrisy or a double life that you need to confess and make right with the Lord. Take this time to identify it, confess it, and turn from it. Amen, please come and serve. Mm-hmm.